Good morning, church. My name's John. I serve as the lead pastor here. It's great to be with you all this morning. Welcome to March. It's a beautiful day outside. It's good to be together this morning in worship. And I hope that uh, we'll have a good time as we look at God's Word this morning. The year was 1986. And in the city of Los Angeles, as well as much of California, they were experiencing an unprecedented amount of crime, particularly small, petty crimes. Crime, uh, drug crimes and small thefts were on the rise. Legislature, the legislature gathered together to investigate the problem began to think about why was this happening and some of the research they stumbled upon told them that people were committing these crimes because they had low self-esteem. They thought too poorly of themselves and so they began to commit crimes. A bipartisan group of legislators got together, some of them even devout Christians, and they presented to then Republican governor, the governor of California, George Duke Majin. They presented to him a bill to create what was called the California Task Force to promote self-esteem and personal and social responsibility. The task force had the goal of exploring where to apply self-esteem techniques to a range of social problems. The governor quickly signed the bill and the state budgeted $245,000 to the task force to investigate this issue. The argument went and the, the thought went that instead of spending so much money on drug crimes and on these petty thefts, Let's invest in something cheaper, and that would be instilling self-esteem, raising self-esteem in the population. The government immediately looked at schools as a place to instill more self-esteem in young people. By the year 1990, just four years later, thousands of school districts around the country had added self-esteem motivational material to their curriculum. Maybe some of you remember changes in your school's curriculum. I would guess that many of you didn't even know that it was intentional to include some of these self-esteem things, self-esteem raising things. I can remember in middle school, my homeroom teacher having what was called a koosh ball. You guys remember koosh balls? They would, uh, a teacher would start with one student and your, your job was to throw the koosh ball to somebody else in the homeroom class and say something really nice about them so they felt good about themselves. You know, many of you participated in these types of activities. The argument went and the thinking went, don't make kids feel bad about anything because if they feel bad, They'll perform and they'll behave poorly. With that, the self-esteem movement took off. 
both in Christian circles and secular circles, new messages were brought to young people designed at building up their individual self-esteem. Phrases like, you can be whatever you want to be. Believe in yourself and anything is possible. You are enough. You are great. You are amazing. Don't ever change. You be you. My personal favorite, you tried. (laughs) You showed up. It's all about you. Social scientists and researchers say that these phrases in this type of training never existed in any books or curriculum or trainings until the late 1980s. Isn't that fascinating? The self-esteem movement is now a 10 to 15 billion dollar a year enterprise. So from $240,000 to $15 billion. The movement is so prevalent that it has become embedded in the national conversation as truth. In fact, we are lying to ourselves if we claim that we have never heard some of these phrases said to ourselves or that we have never said them to friends or family or to our children. To make things even more complex, we've actually added gas to the self-esteem movement fire by giving everybody a cell phone and access to social media. So now we've told a whole bunch of people that you're amazing. You are so great. And now you have a phone and you can tell everybody about how great you are. Here's what's fascinating to me. Around 2005, researchers began poking around the self-esteem movement. And they started asking questions. Is it actually working? Is all this money we're spending to tell everybody about how great they are and how okay they are and how enough they are, is it actually working? And what they found nearly without question is that the movement has been a tremendous failure. Crime rates have actually gone up in all the areas that they were working to prevent crime. Because as they interviewed criminals, they discovered that they believed the items they were stealing were things that they deserved. They committed these crimes thinking that they deserved them and, and then they thought that they were brilliant enough to get away with it. And that if they did get caught, they were now confident enough to think that they would figure out a way to get out of it. The number of diagnosable cases of extreme narcissism has skyrocketed in our country. 
People are more depressed, they're more anxious, and less healthy than ever before. This research, which began, as I said, in the early 2000s, has led to the publication of a series of books, many books. I'll highlight a few of them for you this morning. The first one is called Sham, How the Self-Help Movement Made America Helpless. The second one, which is required reading for anyone raising children, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. The Comfort Crisis, How Embracing Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, and Healthy Self. Perhaps the most discouraging, iGen. Why today's super-connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood and what that means for the rest of us. (laughs) Because the self-esteem movement has become so embedded in our lives, it's incredibly difficult to undo these ideas. This is the water that we swim in. This is the culture and the conversation and the ideas that we are a part of. Have you ever cooked broccoli in your home and then invited company over? You don't realize the stink, right? And then the company comes over and they think, you have a plumbing problem. This is what it's like. We don't even know the stink that we are a part of in this movement, this self-esteem movement and these ideas about being enough. You are enough. You are great. You tried. These things are a part of our foreseeable future. So what's the point here, Vandervelde, you might be asking? Why the cultural commentary this morning? The reason is because these cultural messages, these teachings, this water in which we swim, these messages that we hear, believe, embrace whether we think we do or not have huge implications for our faith undeniable implications for our faith and how we think about God and how we think about ourselves huge implications for how we do church for why we do church why we gather this morning and And how we worship and think about ourselves as a community. In the self-esteem movement or in the era that's known as the self-love era. That's the era in which we find ourselves now. What's the purpose of church and worship? How does Jesus factor into the message of You are enough. 
Church, there are books written about these messages, about training pastors, giving pastors training with the goal of preaching and leading a service that's designed at making people feel better about themselves when they leave these doors so that they return the following week. Training pastors to deliver messages that give people specific steps so that they feel better. And often those steps are things like pray more, read more, serve more, and you guessed it, give more. And church, this is all so very dangerous. It's such a block, it's such an inhibitor of the gospel. Because church, what it leads to is it leads to worship of ourselves. It leads to a focus on ourselves. It leads us to believe that we are righteous enough on our own. It leads to self-righteousness. This, these messages that we hear, and if our churches are focused on making everybody feel better about themselves so that they come back the following week and continue just to give. Now here's the thing, church. If you're thoroughly discouraged this morning, thankfully, thankfully we are not the first generation or the first society, or the first nation to deal with these kinds of issues. This issue of self-righteousness. We aren't left alone to try to figure this all out. In fact, Jesus speaks directly to this issue, to this danger, this sin, this deceitfulness of self-righteousness. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. We're going to continue on in our teaching, and there's a series of parables that we have been making our way through. Let me read the text for us this morning. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went to the temple to pray. One of those men was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I, get, I give twice a week. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, we don't know how much time has passed between Jesus' previous teaching. Last uh, parable we looked at was a teaching about prayer. 
So we don't know how much time has passed between that parable and this parable. We don't know if somebody asked the question. It, it kind of feels like this is in response to a question. Maybe somebody said to Jesus, how are we saved? Or who can be saved? Or how are we justified before God? And Jesus, perhaps in response to these types of questions or just discerning what was going on around him, he offers this teaching. And he does it in the form of a parable. And I need to remind us this morning, I know you're probably tired of me saying it, but we need to remember that parables are designed to go alongside of the text, alongside of the truth that Jesus is trying to get across. That they're illustrations for us to better understand the truth of God about his kingdom and who he is. So we need to be careful at one degree, in one degree with a parable. We need to make sure that we don't overdo it with a parable because a parable is not designed to be a perfect uh, allegory or a perfect metaphor. It's designed to teach a truth, a greater truth. For example, in this parable, if we went to overdo it a little bit, we could say something like, so Jesus wants us to be tax collectors? Sinners and thieves, betrayers and liars, that's what tax collectors were. They had turned their back on their own people. They were traitors and they were manipulators and liars. Well, of, of course not. Right? We, of course Jesus doesn't want us to be like that. Or we could say, isn't the, the Pharisee's thankfulness, isn't his prayer of thankfulness something that we could admire? I would be thankful to God for, for those things, for God allowing me to, to not be a robber or adulterer. Well, yes, of course, there's, there's an element of what the, the Pharisee does and says that, that is true, that we can grasp onto. But if we try to make these perfect connections metaphorically and get all the details to line up, we can often miss the point because the real danger that Jesus is talking about here, there's a real deep and meaningful truth that he's trying to share. Now some have said this parable is about prayer. Prayer or the type of prayers that we offer, but I would argue that that's, that's missing the point. The real danger here is not praying in the wrong way or with the wrong words or, or the, the, the wrong type of prayer. But what's really in Jesus' aim here is this idea of self-righteousness, a confidence in our own righteousness to save us. The danger here is a sin in our heart. When we think perhaps that a, a public display of our spiritual resume or of our righteousness is going to impress God or impress others and, and because of it we will be redeemed and we will be cleansed and we will be justified. See God, look at what I have done. Look who I am. That's what's the real danger here that Christ is talking about. The real danger is a belief 
in self-justification, self-justification, and the associated sin of pride and arrogance that can come along with it. Church, in 2024, we need to recognize that we can easily embrace, believe, allow to seep into our souls this type of self-righteousness. And it can push us away from who Christ really is. This is our eighth week in a sermon series called Religion Versus Jesus. And here in this teaching this morning, in this parable, we have a very clear setup of religion, the peril of religion, and how Jesus wins. If we look at the Pharisee, let's, let's look at the Pharisee this morning. His posture and his attitude in his prayer, his, his heart. What we find is a, is a person, and, and what we find out is that a, a person can be religious, but not be right. This man's religion became the cause of his ruin. He did everything right from a religious perspective. In fact, he, he went above and beyond fasting and giving more than he needed to. The problem is, is that this man had totally excluded God from the picture of his life. His religion was all about himself. Church, every Sunday people come here. And they go to other churches in our community. And they gather with other worshipers and they sing songs. And they, they read the word of God together and, and we pray together and they listen to, to sermons together. And many leave feeling better about themselves than when they went in. But unfortunately, in many cases, they are still deeply rooted in sin. Church, if our religion does nothing more than make us feel better about ourselves as we continue on sinning, then that religion has absolutely doomed us, not saved us. The Pharisee was a religious man who had lost his religion. So does this mean that we should only go to churches that beat us up and make us feel bad? Absolutely yes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Church, it's not my job to make you feel bad this morning. That's not my job. It's also not my job to make you feel better about yourselves this morning. It's not my job to give you three things to do to keep you feeling better and feeling great so that you come back next week. Church, it's my job and the job of this church as a gathering of the people of God to lift 
up the name of Jesus and Jesus alone. That is why we are here this morning. That is why this church exists. It's to lift up the name of Jesus. Recognizing, church, that we are not enough. That we are not great. But he is. Jesus is. We don't invite Jesus to come be a part of what we're doing. Jesus is here and he invites us to come and worship him. It's about him. It's about his power and his goodness and his righteousness because that's our only hope. We recognize that the news about our lives The news about our souls is bad. (laughs) We aren't enough. We aren't okay. We aren't great. But thank God for Jesus because he is. Jesus makes us enough. Jesus makes us okay. Jesus makes us clean. It's not our righteousness that justifies us. It's his. So how do we make that connection? If Jesus' righteousness is what makes us clean, how do we connect with Jesus? How do we get that? How, How do we take on the righteousness of Christ? Well, let's look at the tax collector, the other main character in the parable. The first thing the tax collector does is he stands at a distance. He stands at a distance. That's this ultimate sign of humility. And he recognizes that he is not even worthy to go in and be a part of it because he's turned his back on his people. He's become rebellious. He's a sinner. He's turned his back on God. And so he, he feels like he can't even enter. He's, he, he's so distraught. He's so humble that he can't even look to heaven because he knows what he's done and he knows who he is. And he beats his chest out of frustration that he's gotten into the place where he is. And he's mad that there's nothing he can do to make himself worthy to God. He's frustrated. There's nothing he can do. He's he's done so much. And it's all fallen short. And he beats his chest And then he cries out to God in mercy, confessing who he is. I am a sinner. And the only way I'm saved, God, is through you and your grace alone. I'm back here. I can't even look at you. I hate who I've become. And I need you. I'm crying out to you in mercy. And 
Church, it's these things, this humbleness, this admission of brokenness, this crying out to mercy to God. These are the things that bring us from death to life. These are the things that make us whole again. These are the things that make us enough because we are relying on God and his grace poured out on us in Jesus Christ. Let me read to you Romans 5, verse 8 through 10. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? It's Jesus, the blood of Jesus that justifies us. Our faith in Jesus It's not of our own selves. It's trusting in Jesus that saves us. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Church, if if that's not good news, I don't know what is. Our righteousness can't justify us, but Jesus' righteousness can. Let me read for you 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 and 21. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And here's how it works. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That connection to Christ, when we confess that we believe in Jesus and that we know that it's his blood that justifies us, not our own righteousness, and we, and we say, Jesus, we need you. I cry out to mercy for, to you to save me. What happens is that he takes on our sin and we take on his righteousness. That's how it works. Our sin on him and his righteousness on us. And when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus, not our sin. Praise God for that miracle in Christ. Praise God we don't have to try to merit God's favor and fast and give and show up and to get the favor of God. Church, we do that in response to what he has done for us. Our religion is an outpouring of the thankfulness for the transaction of giving our sin to Jesus and him giving us our righteousness. Is it making sense? If you want to feel good this morning and leave those doors feeling great, I invite you, if you have never made that transaction in your life before, do it this morning. And you will walk out those doors. Life doesn't get perfect. 
but you will have a freedom and a confidence. Your life will be radically changed because you have taken on the righteousness of Christ from death to life. And if you've already had that conversation, you're already following Jesus, be inspired this morning to throw off the burden of trying to reconcile yourself to God or merit his favor and walk free, living a life of just thankfulness to Jesus for what he's done. Let me pray. God, you are so good to us. You are so good to us, God. While we were sinners, while we were broken, while we were dead in our sin, you sent Christ to bring us life and life to the full. Lord, this morning we are so thankful for Jesus, for his teaching in in your word, for his life, for his death, for his resurrection. We praise him this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing one song in response. Would you stand? We'll sing together.